0: Hi, I'm Ellen Pompeo, and welcome to Tell Me. Okay, so this is a compilation episode of The Best Of. When we were listening to clips and going over audio that we loved... There was a theme, which was positivity. I think it's a really profound concept. It took me so long. I grew up in a really negative environment. And I learned later in life that most of the successful people that I ran into were super positive. And it just became so obvious to me that the way to everything is a positive attitude and a positive outlook. If you look at the glass half full, there's so much more possibility than the glass half empty This is something I practice all the time. I'm still working on it, but the power of positivity is definitely a lesson that I learned in my life. And so it seemed to be a theme here. A lot of people talked about it. You're definitely going to have fun listening to this one. Hi, Tinks. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So we have to start with like, you have to tell me where Tinks comes from. It's a really funny
1: story. When I was younger, I was actually not that confident. And it bothered me. I wanted so desperately to be confident like the other girls. So I was home for the summer and I watched this movie. It had Kirsten Dunst in it. And it's a movie that not a lot of people have seen. I think it's called Strike. And anyway, in it, there's this character called Tinka Parker. And she's like the coolest girl. All the boys love her. So when I came back to school that fall, I told my friends, you guys, I have an alter ego now. And her name is Tinka Parker. And when I'm her, I'm really confident and I'll say anything. And they were like, okay. It was kind of my Sasha Fierce moment. And slowly but surely, I sort of just became her. And so Tinka Parker got shortened to Tinka, which got shortened to Tinks. And so now it's been my nickname for 20 years. The moral of the story is sometimes you have to fake it till you make it with confidence. And that really does work.
0: I tell myself that all the time. And I have an alter ego too. My assistant has named her Sanjolina. Sanjalina, I love that. Yes. Because Sanjay <laughs> Gupta did the podcast and sometimes I get so overwhelmed. Yeah. I freak out and I'm like, I'm doing too much. And Sanjay, he does so many things. I mean, among them like brain surgery once a week.
1: Right. No big deal.
0: <laughs> no big deal. So I was like, how do you do brain surgery, be on TV, Write books, do podcasts, and you're literally the happiest man I've ever seen. I mean, he literally just glows. Yeah. And he was like, Well, these are all, you know, opportunities. I get to do all these things. They're not chores. It's not stuff I have to do. I have the privilege to do all these things. And I was like, Wow, that's amazing. I have to start thinking about my life that way. Yeah. And so when I get overwhelmed, my assistant's like, just channel Sanjelina. And I'm like, okay, here I am.
1: Angelina. So she's a Zen version of you. I love that. No, it's true. Actually, it's so funny. My girlfriend said that to me the other day. I was like freaking out. I called her and I was like, I have so much to do. I'm not going to get it all done. She said, you have so much that you get to do. And I was like, that is such a good reframe. I'm so lucky to be busy, but it's hard. It's hard sometimes. I had a full crying meltdown yesterday. Sometimes it just gets to be too much, but now I will think of Sanjolina when I have those moments.
0: Now you have three personalities.
1: Yes, the more the merrier, you know, when it comes to personalities.
0: I feel like it's good. It's like my seven-year-old. We have to put on different costumes and be different people. And actually, it's a good device for us. We should start that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I have one aggressive personality and I've to put her away. I had a conversation with a good girlfriend of mine this morning who went to the Hoffman Institute and she just recently came back and she had this great experience and She was like, you know, I I would react aggressively to things before and now I don't. And I said to myself, it's funny because fame, and you may encounter this, fame has really made me have to have compassion for situations rather than be angry. Yeah. Because so much gets called out or when you feel in the spotlight or you feel like people are accusing you of things that you didn't do, our natural defense is to get defensive, right? But I am channeling Sanjolina now. I'm like, well, I'm really sorry that people feel that way or people think that's what I meant or said or any of that. In the same conversation, we also talked about how for my childhood trauma, acting has been a really good outlet for me because part of people's pain or whatever that they never get to release, I've had the blessing to be able to release that. So I'm glad you had a good cry yesterday.
1: But how did you learn to de-escalate yourself in those situations when people would say, accuse you of something or misunderstand you or what have you, like, how did you learn that compassion? Because I feel like I'm very new to this world, but I'm online. So there's a lot of instances where people can accuse me or misunderstand me. And I got to be honest, I get so upset and frustrated and it's like, it's too much. You can't go to every person and explain yourself. So how did you learn to Think I'm sorry that you feel that way or this made you, you know, you interpreted that way? Like, was it just over the
0: course of your career or
1: through what?
0: I think that it's been very recent mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. And- I think because social media and our media in general is such a clickbait society now with cancel culture and everything is so heightened, Mm -hmm. I've really been forced out of self-care to look for another, like look for a kinder way to handle these emotions. And I, I probably didn't come up with it on my own. I've listened to whoever I follow on Instagram, motivational stuff, listen to people who are super positive. Right. And that is one great thing about social media is I love all the positivity that you can find on there if that's what you're looking for and help you think about things or reframe things in a new way. There's another woman I follow on Instagram and she held up a sign on Instagram. She holds holds up signs. The other very powerful thing, that I saw her say that really helped me was, there's power in not having to explain your side of the story all the time. Yes. I love that.
1: I love that. I don't know if she ever said this, but I always have this quote in my head from, um, by the way, I'm very into mantras and you know positive thinking and all that too. So I think Kate Moss said that she had this phrase, don't complain, don't explain. And sometimes that helps me when I'm like, oh, this comment that this person wrote about me, they don't get me. They didn't understand my joke. I think don't complain about it and don't explain yourself. It's not to do with you. And also what Oprah says, she says, you know, if people speak about you behind your back or without knowing you, that's their business. That's their business. That's their whole thing. So that's another one that I'm like, "Mm, you know what? I don't know that person. They don't know me. Forget it. That's their business. It's not mine. So it's a work in progress, though. It can be difficult.
0: It is. It's an interesting choice for you because you know, you have this incredible education. You went to Stanford, you're a writer. There's other things you could do. Mm -hmm. And yet your frequency and your vibration really is speaking to so many people. You know, which is interesting because there's so many people trying to be influencers who want to break through on social media and just are not able. And then by happenstance, Whatever your frequency is, whatever your vibration is, the tone of your voice, the things you say, I think it's a combination always when people are attracted to someone, whether it's an evil person or a good person. Mm. I think your frequency and your vibration speaks to a certain sect. It's like a radio dial, right? Uh And you're choosing to put yourself, which is a very brave thing to do, and I hope you get credit for that. I hope you give yourself credit for that. Who cares if anybody else gives you credit for it? I hope you give yourself credit for it because it's a brave thing to do to put yourself out there in the line of fire, which is exactly where you are. And it's something I've struggled with Doing this podcast, why would I put a microphone in front of myself and say things that people can pick apart? Right. And there's bravery and courage in that. And that's a message that's always gonna benefit young women, I think. Go back to your point of whether we put on our Tinks armor yeah. or we put on our alter egos. Whatever gets you through the day. Rihanna says that too. Rihanna says, fake it till you make it. I see a TikTok or a reel of Rihanna saying the same thing. And I'm critical of myself. When I open up on this podcast and I talk about my vulnerability, I'm like, shit. I'm not faking it till I make it. I just talked about my vulnerability. And then everyone around you is like, but it's good to talk about your vulnerability. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, no, I want to put on my Fenty lingerie and tell everyone, (laughs) you know, that I'm a bad bitch. Oh (laughs) my God.
1: I know that exact self-conversation all too well. I really do. Especially with me, I feel that I have to be strong for the girls as in my followers. And I don't mean just women younger than me. I mean- any woman that follows me, I think a lot of people look to me to be strong. So then I'm like, okay, I read a lot of Brene Brown. I believe in the power of vulnerability, but then I'm also like, but I need to be strong for them. And so even yesterday when I had this like huge crying meltdown, I was so stressed out. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know whether to tell my followers or not because I want them to know that it's okay to have a complete wobbly in the middle of the day sometimes, but I also want them to know that I'm holding it together and that I'm strong for them. And, you know, It's really tricky and it's hard to know when to expose that vulnerability and when to put on the Fenty lingerie and say, you know what, here I am. It's a difficult challenge.
0: Or a balancing act. I love that. Reframe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's making me think of your conversation with Barbara Corcoran, who I love. And I loved that conversation. I didn't see the whole thing, but I saw a piece of it where you said, I learn from every experience or from every job. Mm -hmm. And that is such a valuable piece of information. Even if you have a meltdown, even if you are faking it on that day, as long as you're learning from the experience, then you're okay.
1: 100%. And even if it seems like a situation where you can't learn anything, and you can. And I always tell my followers, how you do anything is how you do everything. So even if you are in a job that you literally hate, that is so just, you hate everything you have to do. Your only job is to get coffee, which by the way, I've had many of those jobs. You always learn something if you just open your eyes.
2: Yes, men, it is okay to cry. It is okay to express your feelings. It is okay to tell people exactly what's going on with you internally. I don't know who told us men that we're not allowed to have bad days. I don't know who told women they're not allowed to have bad days. Even that whole angry, you know, they like to say, oh, black women are angry when they speak up for themselves or when they, you know, know who they are. I'm like, You have every right to be angry.
0: Yeah, why wouldn't they be angry? Look at this world.
2: Yeah, James Baldwin said that to be truly conscious in America will have you in a constant fit of rage about what's happening in this country. I'm paraphrasing here. That's not the exact quote. Yeah, no,
0: if you're not mad, you're not paying attention. You're
2: not paying attention, exactly. That's all it is. All of these labels that we put on people, have you ever stopped to think, Well, why is that person angry? Right. Probably a very valid reason. For
0: sure, for sure. And it goes back to what you were saying about coping mechanisms or not showing emotion or men not showing emotion. There comes the biology, right? It comes right back to our biology in our brain, creating a defense mechanism. I always try to be mindful of why people respond the way they do or why they're behaving the way they do. You know, it's a reaction to something to survive, you know?
2: hundred percent. And projecting is a thing too, you know? So like I said, sometimes people say things to you and I don't like to use the word triggering them no more. I like to use the word activated. My man, Rezma Minicum, he wrote this phenomenal book called My Grandmother's Hands. It's been on the New York Times bestsellers for like a hundred weeks or something crazy like that. But he always says, don't say triggered, say activated. Because sometimes you hear things or feel things or see things that activate something in you.
0: It's such a more positive. Yeah. Phonetically, it's more positive. Activate. I love that. Thank you. I love it.
2: Triggering, I think, puts you on the defensive. When somebody triggers you, then you automatically, it's like fight or flight almost. Your body registers them as an enemy. But activated just means like, whoa, wait a minute. You're bringing something up in me that I'm fully aware of. And it may not be you. It's me. An internal issue that I haven't dealt with. So let me not project any pain onto you because you activated me. You know what I mean? I always want to make sure I'm not just projecting old wounds and old pain onto people because they have no idea that, you know, those things activate me. And it's good, right? Because it really helps in the workplace. Like it's things that I'll hear and immediately I might snap a little bit like, no, I'm not doing it. And then when I sit down, I take a deep breath and I'm able to explain like, hey, hearing that activated this in me and brought me back to displace, you know, are activating a feeling in me that I'm all too familiar with and I'm not trying to feel at this moment. So it really has nothing to do with this particular situation. This is why I reacted in that way. And I'm telling you, it really helps for conversations, not just in the workplace, but in your personal life as well.
0: For sure, in workplace situations are definitely challenging, especially where there 's a lot of people around all the time you know and sometimes, if another woman is experiencing something and that would activate something in me when I was going through something, no one ever stood up for me in this particular situation, so I immediately want to stand up for someone else and say you know this shouldn 't be happening, and even if it has nothing to do with me, I would feel the obligation and the responsibility to stand up for another woman. And then I had to learn the hard way that not everybody wants you to speak up for them. Mm. You know, whatever that is, whatever that activates for someone else, me thinking I'm doing something good and I'm doing what I should be, which is standing up for a coworker, isn't necessarily always received in the right way. And that's another challenging dynamic I've had to sort of navigate and learn lesson the hard way is can't always advocate for other people. They don't always want you to.
2: Yeah, I don't know if I'm necessarily advocating for individuals as much as I am for ideologies a lot of the time. Like, that situation just happened to me in the past, like, 10 days. Like, you know, there was something being said in the workplace, and at first I was upset about what was said about me. Like, I heard the whole story and I was like, I can't possibly be this upset about what was said about me. Because there was really nothing valid said about me. And then I had to sit back and think, and I'm like, oh, I don't like that this person is bullying this person. Because that's literally what it was. It was like a male woman dynamic. And it's like, you would never talk to me like that. That's why you went to vent to her. But he may not see it as bullying, but what he did was bullying. And that's what really activated me. Because it's not about sticking up for that individual, even though the person is somebody I love dearly. It's about getting rid of the ideology that you as a man can do this to a woman. And you would never do this to any other man in this building. So when I'm going at that person, I'm not going at the individual. I'm going at the ideology. Why? Because I don't want my homegirls to have to deal with that. I don't want my daughters to have to deal with that in the future. I don't want any woman to have to deal with that in the future. So we have to nip those ideologies in the bud as opposed to saying, you know what? I'm standing up for said individual. Like, yes, yeah, it's good to stand up for people, but sometimes I mean I am standing up for you. Let's not get it twisted, but I'm standing up for this ideology. I'm standing up for this bad behavior, <laughs> you know, this ignorant way that this person is doing things. That's what I'm nipping in the butt.
0: I like that because you can apply that a lot to, you know, just the state of the world right now with everybody attacking everybody else. We should be focusing on the ideology, not the actual people. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know. In some instances, it's the people.
2: Because sometimes those people are an exact poster child for the ideology we're trying to get rid of. And we don't want that behavior to be mimicked. So I understand making the individual a target. But even when you're doing that, you have to still say it's because of the ideology that this person is, you know, pushing. When we talk about even, you know, the 45th president, it wasn't just that. It was an ideology. It was a way of life that he that he was. I'm not even saying bring it back because it never left. But he activated it, new and old. And so it was like, yo, we got to attack that whole ideology. Because, I mean, as we see, even with him not being there, the ideology still exists. It does. Probably worse now.
0: That fear and anger are not a high vibration. It's not a productive vibration. Love is really only vibration that moves us forward and takes us up. Everything else will just eat at you personally and it's not productive.
2: I talk about that when it comes to like violence, you know, especially violence in our communities, right? The black community. A lot of times these brothers, these sisters, they just literally are seeking love. They're seeking a sense of self-worth that they've never had. And sometimes, man, people will kill you because of how other people love you. And if you've never experienced the kind of love that you feel like these other people get, that can make you very vindictive. That can make you very jealous. That can make you very envious. There's certain things I see people do to other people, and I don't just dismiss them. I go, that person is hurting. That person has so much trauma that they haven't dealt with. Like, that person is really going through it because there's no way he would do that or she would do that if they weren't going through something and you know, it's easy to say, oh, throw the person in jail, or give the person the death penalty. Hey, man, everybody got to deal with the consequences of their actions. So I get it. But man, sometimes we failed those individuals because these people might have been crying out for help since they were kids. There might have been so many red flags since they were kids but who picked up those individuals and poured into them and let them know that they were loved and they were valued and they were appreciated. When you do that to somebody, when somebody feels that, it's very, 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 very hard for them to hurt somebody else. I truly believe that. I truly believe hurt people hurt people. And I truly believe there's so many people that are just projecting pain onto others because of something that they lack in their life. And it's usually just that love. It's that appreciation. It's that sense that they're valued. That goes a long way.
0: I'm going to leave it right there because I can't top that. Lenard Maine I love you, man.
2: Ellen, I love you more.
0: I am such a big believer in kids
3: going away to college to be away from home, meet other people who are not the same as you. Boy, any kid who has the chance to travel, you know, in high school or college and even go to another country, it just opens your eyes to the fact that you know, LA or Seattle or New York is not the center of the world, right? There are so many other people and cultures out there and ways of thinking, and to me that's just broadening for anyone.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I think in every state, no matter where you are, I think it was Taraji P. Henson said one time in an interview that I saw, you know, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, and I hope I'm getting this right, but Hollywood seemed like another world. And really, it's just 11 miles away. Mm -hmm. So that definitely exists for young women so Melinda and I are encouraging all of you young girls to get on the train or the bus, if you can, (laughs) and just go explore. (laughs) Take a day trip to the nearest big city. Go with someone. Be safe. But take a day trip to the big city and just see what else is out there because it will open up your mind for sure. Absolutely. And I
3: have to say, one of the reasons I want so many women to do well in all kinds of fields and including media is young girls look up to those role models and say, I can be like that character. I can be like that news anchor. You know, my oldest daughter, who's 25, she's in medical school right now. And she and her two best friends in high school on Sunday nights, what did they do when they (laughs) finished their homework? They plopped down and watched Grey's Anatomy. And two of the three are in medical school today, right? I mean. Media does have an outsized impact on role modeling. You could be like this person, right? And the show you're on, the female characters aren't anything all alike. There are lots of different types of characters and they could say, oh, I want to be more like that one or more like this potential type of doctor than that one. That is really, really important. It's
0: why we need more
3: female leaders in all types of positions in the country.
0: It's powerful. Representation really matters. It's true. Well, Melinda, this was an absolute joy to talk to you. I'm really happy and grateful that you made the time, and I thank you for everything that you do. Um, sorry, oh, sorry. What? Do what? What? Oh well, my goodness! Dana, she's-
4: Marina told me she was a recipient of the Gates Foundation. I'm gonna cry. Gates
0: Foundation. She went to college for two years on the Gates. My assistant, yes, Marina. Yes, so wow! Why didn't you oh tell
3: my me? gosh! Come that's in so here. great.
0: What? Yes. Get in here. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Are you gonna cry? <gasps> Wait, come <laughs> on camera. Hi. Hi. Melinda, this is my assistant,
3: Hi. Marina. It's so nice
4: to meet you. Hi,
3: Marina. Where did you go to college?
4: In Florida. But I went to high school, and they were starting a program called Early College. Sure. Funded by you guys. And so I got my AA for free in
3: high school. Wow.
4: Oh my gosh. That's
3: fantastic. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. That's exactly the kind of thing that I love to hear. When I meet people who it's like, "Oh, they were able to do something different with their lives because of a program they had access to." That's just great. It did.
4: It helped me go to school.
3: Oh. Well, I'm so glad to meet you, Marina. It was
4: nice meeting you as well.
3: Yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, okay, she is shaking. Uh, <laughs> I, Laura threw me under the bus. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, my goodness. Is, I can't. So she's in my house every day, all day long, and she never mentioned this. Oh. This is like such an exciting episode of this show. Oh, my goodness. Now I have to give her a raise. You see? Wow. Thanks. Wait, Bye. is that not magic, though?
3: Isn't it amazing? Yeah. You said, how do you remain hopeful? It's exactly that, right? Even when we see bad news headlines every day or something, but then you see somebody like Marina, you know, who's on a different path in life. That's what keeps me hopeful.
0: You're opening a restaurant in Las Vegas called the Bedford based on your farm in Bedford.
5: Yes. Well, it's going to be a 196-seat restaurant in the Paris Hotel, which is owned by Caesars. It's a exciting project because it's my first restaurant. And I've always wanted to do a restaurant, but I'm not a really good nighttime person. So, you know, by about 9, 30, 10, I want to go home. And restaurants do keep you out a little later than that if you're serving dinners. I do really well with a breakfast restaurant, but this is going to be a lunch and dinner restaurant. The recipes are all based on my favorite foods, seasonally grown, very beautifully prepared. They're my favorite recipes. So we're going to have quite a varied menu, but it will change with the seasons. And the whole restaurant looks like the interior of my winter house, which is the farmhouse that I live in right here in Bedford. So it's very exciting. They've done a phenomenal job replicating my home, down to the figural marble that they're using in the kitchen, to the upholstery, to the faux bois stenciled walls, to the muntins on the windows. Everything is so authentic. You know, they'll let me choose all the wines, of course, and everything, and we're going to be serving our Martha's Chard, which is our new Chardonnay from Treasury Wines, which is also 19 crimes wines. And it's delicious, by the way. Do you drink wine? I do. I do drink wine. Okay. Well, I'm going to send you a couple bottles because I really want your opinion. It's a light burgundy, aligoté type Chardonnay. So it's not that oaky, heavy, buttery wine that we're used to calling Chardonnay. It's a very nice recipe and I worked on it really hard with the wine company and I think it's a very good wine. So we'll see. It goes on sale very shortly. We're pairing it up with Snoop Dogg's Cali Red. He has a Cali Red wine, which broke all records last year for a wine launch. Now, remember, this is inexpensive, accessible, but well-made wine. So it's going to retail for about $14 a bottle, which is extremely inexpensive for a nice bottle of wine. And hopefully our red and our white will go very nice. Together in a two pack So do you get the joke? Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. So
0: <laughs> but on both, yeah, so, that was a good one. She tells <laughs> jokes too.
5: I do, I do. Snoop said, that's dope, Martha. That's dope. <laughs> so I knew I made it as a comedian when I made that joke.
0: Nice. The pairing of you together is just genius. You guys are just genius together. The big lighter, uh-huh. everything you do. You were just here in LA. We were doing Puppy Bowl. Puppy Bowl. Puppy Bowl for
5: Animal Planet and Discovery Plus, which will be on the same day as the Super Bowl. It's in the afternoon for you to get ready while you're making all your various hors d'oeuvres and snack foods for the Super Bowl. You will have to watch the Puppy Bowl because it's charming. And it's, uh, it's basically a way to get people to adopt all the hundreds of thousands of needy dogs that are available right now in shelters. But it's also a place to show the amazing acrobatics that dogs can be trained to do. These dogs are really special dogs. So it's kind of
0: fun. Yeah, I love watching it with the kids. My kids love to watch Westminster and all the dog shows. I have five dogs, all adopted. What
5: kind of dogs do you have?
0: They're all kind of some version of a poodle mix because I have asthma. So I like a poodle. Mix because I don't suffer so much. I don't need my inhaler to be around them. I like poodles, they're really charming and super smart. I have never really been attracted to poodles. I like the large poodles, the standards. Yeah. And then
5: I met some large poodles at Stephen Gambrell's house. Candice Bushnell has two of the most fabulous poodle dogs you've ever seen. But those dogs are so beautiful and so obedient, and they're, they're very human-like. I get a little nervous having dogs that are too human-like around me. I really like dogs to be dogs, and I also don't like dogs to be obsequious. So that's why I have French Bulldogs and I have Chow Chows. Chow Chows are aloof and fabulous, and mine are very friendly, but they are still aloof, and I like that. And they're generally not beggar dogs, although I've done a pretty bad job of training my Emperor Han to ask for snacks every now and then. Now he puts his paw on my knee to ask for a snack, (laughs) which is so unchow-like. I mean, it really is beneath him. And then I have Frenchies who are so needy and wanting, but also fun so very different from poodles very
0: yeah i used to love italian greyhounds i had italian greyhounds oh how i got into poodles my husband's mother had passed away and when i was cleaning up her things i found a picture of my husband as a boy with this little toy poodle and he was just so sad so i wanted to make him happy so i bought him the same kind of toy poodle that he had in this picture because he looked so happy as a little boy holding this little toy poodle Thank you for having me. Thank you, Martha. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Ciao. Hi, Michelle. How are you, gorgeous? (laughs) How are you? I love the theory of the beauty and breaking, and we'll just start to sort of break it down piece by piece. But I think thematically, based on the Japanese art, of. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that.
4: Yes. And I, I practice saying this, I'm going to butcher it and I apologize to everyone in the world, but Kinsakoroi.
0: Better than I would have
4: done. (laughs) The art of, well, repairing broken pottery. And the theory, as I understand it, is that you have pottery, a treasured objects, and it can be broken just by the mutability of life. There are cracks that appear, it falls, it breaks. But instead of just discarding it, it is repaired with an amalgam of precious metals, whether it's silver, platinum, yellow, gold. And so in that process of repairing it that way, the cracks, the breaks are actually highlighted and the vessel is thought to be more beautiful for what it has survived and how it has rebuilt um, thereafter. And I feel the same is true for humans because because no matter what, part of the deal of being human is that there will be pain and there will be suffering. And so the question is what we do with that and how we heal from that. You know, I never romanticize trauma, but I want to acknowledge it and acknowledge that when we take the opportunity to heal ourselves, we can then become stronger, more resilient, and then also be there for others and their healing process should we choose it. And for me, that's the whole point of this life.
0: It's incredible. I loved the analogy so much. It's a Japanese tradition. And, you know, your book opens with a quote by Hazrat. I will butcher this too. I'll do my best. Hazrat Anayat Khan. God breaks the heart again and again and again until it stays open. And I think it's incredible. And so I'd love to hear you talk about and tell us another thing. And I think this is something that you and I actually have in common. And I should say we've never met before. But this really struck me as you had a difficult childhood. Mm-hmm. Your father was abusive toward your mother. Was your father also a doctor? Yes, he was. It, yeah, it's sort of like you touch on it, but not too much. It's more about his abusive nature. But I did gather that, which is an interesting fact that you chose the same profession. So you used your trauma as a child and you found a way to make a life with it and sort of monetize it, if you will, make it have a purpose in your life. And I did the same, I think, with, you know, my mother passed away when I was four this trauma caused all this emotion, right? And so I found a way with acting. I found something to do with all that excess emotion. And that's the thing I'm I'm most grateful for. And I feel like comparatively in emergency medicine, especially emergency room medicine, you talk about Having to assess a situation very, very quickly, unlike a specialist who is getting – seeing a cancer patient or a patient with suffers from migraines or whatever, they have time to look over their information and, you know, it's a series of meetings. With you, you're getting trauma and it's just flying yeah. in the door and you have a split second to assess how to treat that person, what to do first. You know, the three – I've played a doctor for 18 years. I open the yes. airway open. You know, yes. all of these things. And that takes a very special... I always say medicine is a calling, right? Um, Especially, I feel that especially true for emergency room physicians because it really is a calling because you're literally dealing with trauma after trauma after trauma. And that is a special skill. And so the way that you not only write about it, you have this incredible balance in your writing And it seems in your work and life, you've mastered this incredible balance of writing about trauma, but writing about it with such grace and beauty and conveying, you know, when that baby is on that table and you're having to try to resuscitate, you know, a two-month old, your Mm -hmm. heart is just breaking into pieces. And you reach this incredible balance of you're on the edge of your seat with this book and then the grace of your emotion and how you dealt with that. And then similarly in your life, how you deal with this profession, how you deal with this trauma, Mm -hmm. how you deal with all the emotion coming at you constantly and find a way to still sleep at night and keep your soul nourished. And I think that we could apply this to anyone listening who's in healthcare or anyone who aspires to be in healthcare or just in life in general. I mean, I think a lot of us right now feel like there's so much coming Mm -hmm. at us and you found a great way to balance that. And you talk about that in the book. You tell us about your meditation practice and
4: your yoga. And I think that's so important. Thank you for that. And I do agree. And I will say, just like yoga, it's a practice. It's a lifestyle. It's part of my life. You know, one of the reasons I opened with that quote about God breaks your heart again and again until it remains open is that there will be a steady wave of challenges and opportunities and experiences that break our heart and they can break us open. You know, one of those experiences, and I speak about this in the memoir, I actually, I open with this in the memoir how I did grow up in an abusive household with a father who was a batterer. And so as a result, my home life was extremely unstable. At any given point of time, I didn't know if there would be danger. Would I need to? Even tiny me, little Michelle me, was strategizing how I could be safe, how I could keep my family safe. Um, When I say family, I am referring to my sister who's close in age with me, my brother, who's approximately nine years older than me, my mother. But as a child, this is what I was going through in my mind. So even when I was young, there was this triage system that, you know, now I use those words triage. Now I'm an ER doctor that I was going through because I just had a snapshot. Is this moment safe? Is it not safe? And we have to make an intervention or maybe it just looks like it's unsafe and it's going to blow over. Turns out Those are exactly the tools, the skill set that I need to apply now in my profession. And because I knew in an embodied way what it is like to be afraid, what it is like to feel traumatized, whether or not there was actual life threat at at the time, I think that's what really, what led me to be drawn to emergency medicine. You know, there was various breakthrough moments And one breakthrough moment I speak about is when my brother was trying to protect my mother. Happened on many occasions. This one occasion, he was injured by my father who bit his thumb. And I was a young teenager, just had my permit to drive. And I remember thinking at that time when I saw my brother's injured hand, I thought, how does someone enact such violence on a family member? enough to harm them, could have maimed them. And the injury to me looked gruesome. And I volunteered. I was going to drive my brother to the ER, which I did. And I waited while he was getting help. And I saw while I was waiting, all manner of life converge in this space. I mean, this is pre-pandemic, so people could gather in the waiting room. And well, there was a homeless man just needing moments of respite to rest safely from the elements, or a little girl who was brought in, bleeding, needing stitches. And then I saw her skipping out, healed, or a family, or a man being brought in on a stretcher, and the medics are pounding on his chest. They're pumping air into his lungs, and then seeing streams of family member come in, asking for him, looking for him. And one way or another, no matter what happened to him, they were going to have to find a way forward. They were looking for some kind of miracle for him, miracle for themselves. And that was one of those times when I saw that waiting in the ER. I knew that I wasn't alone in this. I knew that we were all looking for healing. And I saw that it was possible. And I knew that I wanted to go on in my life and not only get better myself, and I had this window, this glimpse, that I could get better but that I wanted to be there for others when they felt traumatized, when they were looking for healing. And so, yes, that's an example of how I've used that pain to get me to the next stages of my life. And I've never forgotten that experiences others. And while we don't forget our trauma, I think that we can heal from it. I think we can live in a way with it that deepens us that is propulsive in positive ways.
0: I agree. I think that if you have the gift of emotional intelligence, you can try to look at that trauma and pain and say, what can I do with this? What can I turn this into? And the same way the Japanese do with a cracked vase. How can I make this vase beautiful again? How can I use these cracks to make it beautiful? And by using that powdered metal and amalgam and gluing it back together, they do just that. The other thing that I find really interesting that I'd love for you to talk about the messenger, it's not even the message, it's the messenger. I really believe in frequency and I'm obsessed with what makes someone want to listen to someone's podcast from someone else's podcast, right? It's the way they sound. What makes someone want to subscribe and be a disciple of a certain politician or a certain preacher? I think frequency has so much to do with the messages we receive. And, you know, if you were to say something to me and someone else were to say the same thing, would I believe it as much because I like you because my ears are used to listening to you on podcasts or books on tape? So am I more receptive to your ideas when you present them as I would be, I don't know, someone else? And I just think it's how cult leaders have been able to get away with what they get away with. It's, it's like the messenger and the voice and the frequency with which that voice and that message hits our brain or our ears. Do you think that plays into our belief systems?
6: The question of messenger versus message is so critical. It's not what was said. It's whether you trusted the source of what was said. That really drives how much credibility you attach to it and and whether it influences you. And I think we're doing so much of this. I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons I sat down to write Think Again is I kept seeing people say, well, I'll listen to someone because their opinions make me feel good. Like, no, that's not how you learn. You learn by listening to people because their thoughts make you think hard. And I kept seeing people kind of seal themselves in echo chambers and filter bubbles where they would surround themselves with people who agreed with their conclusions. Like, no, you evolve your beliefs and your thinking by trying to hang out with people who challenge your thought process. And I think that we're in a source credibility crisis right now. You know, we've obviously given many people a megaphone or at least a microphone. And it's too easy to find people, you know, who share your views and basically tune out everyone else. And I think one of the better ways to solve this, if I were running a social media platform, for example, is let's give people a credibility score in different domains. So you should listen to me much more on topics of work in psychology than when I start to talk about music or COVID or chemistry, right? Because I don't have expertise in those areas. And I don't think we're differentiating that way. I think people listen to a podcaster or a thought leader and they assume they're equally credible on everything when, of course, we're all smarter and less intelligent on a range of topics. I'd just love to see more nuance there.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. Complexity of thought is just an overarching theme of the book and enough can't be said about it. It's interesting in my business, there's a lot of creatives, but also executives that sort of have to work together. And it's an interesting dynamic, for sure, to have been witness to and watch evolve or devolve. For example, like showrunners in television are super, super creative people. And then they're also meant to be leaders. And they're also meant to sort of not only be leaders, but they have to sort of manage 200 people or however many people are on a set. And that's vastly different from creating drama and fiction. And if you're super creative, great writer, you're then entrusted with the care of 200 people in a completely different capacity in which you have no experience, maybe not even want to do. It's interesting the way that Hollywood sort of bridges those kinds of work situations and melds these two things, emotional creativity, and then sort of a technical capacity to manage people. I mean, they have support systems on either side, but it really all falls on them if any one of those systems fall short. And I imagine that to be one of the most challenging jobs in my line of work.
6: I think it's a more extreme version of a problem that we see in a lot of fields. I think the (laughs) the original term for it in sociology was the Peter principle. Have you come across this before? No. It's one of my favorite ideas. So the sociology Lawrence Peter coined the this pattern where If you're good at your job, you get promoted. And you keep getting promoted until you're not good enough to get promoted anymore. But you're not bad enough to get fired either. And his observation was, we all get promoted to our levels of incompetence in workplaces. Uh, (laughs) Because if you're really good, you keep rising. And then when you're not quite good enough, you get stuck. And there's some new research by Alan Benson and colleagues, which basically says, look, (laughs) when somebody's really good at a role, that doesn't always mean they need to advance to another role. What they're looking for usually is a bump in status and a bump in salary as well. What if we gave them a fancier title and paid them more, but let them keep doing their current job? And I think that could be relevant in some parts of Hollywood.
0: I think you're right. They do do that to some extent. They give people a producer credit, and they may give you a little bit more money, or in in many cases, they don't. They just give you a title. And so, you know, that checks the ego box, and many people are sort of okay with that.
6: While we're on Hollywood, I have questions for you. Sure, please. One I'm very curious about is I have been a superhero fan for a long time. And whenever people ask me what my favorite Marvel movie is, I tell them Daredevil. And I feel like it's been massively underrated. And I know you're in it. And I want to know, why don't people see in it what I see in it?
0: You have amazing vision because I was in it for about three seconds. (laughs) Like literally, literally people joke around and say, if you blink, you'll miss me. But literally, like if you blink, you'll miss me in that film. But I love that you know that. You know, I don't know. I mean, I do have theories. I think people respond to actors in different roles. I mean, you know, Goodwill Hunting, people love Ben in that movie. I mean, he's incredible in that movie. And then you see him in Daredevil and not so much. It's like we hang on to archetypes of who we believe is good in a role or looks like that role and who we believe doesn't. And so I think that maybe people didn't necessarily see Ben as a superhero. Superheroes, you know, those kind of movies were just really starting to get made, right? Yeah. And wasn't as big a thing as it was now. You had other choices of like fantastic dramas or, you know, Scorsese movies and, you know, quote unquote, real cinema. I'm not judging the <laughs> superhero movies at all. I love them <laughs> and I take my kids to them and I think all the women in them do a fantastic job. But I think there were more choices then than there are now so i think that maybe if that movie were made now it would do better
6: fascinating i really want everyone to watch the rain scene in particular where all of a sudden daredevil goes from being blind to being able to see through some version of echolocation i'm like that is amazing but <laughs> okay before i turn the mic back over to you one other thing i was i was intrigued by is I haven't spent nearly as much time on, on a set as you have, but I've done a little bit of research and podcasting with creative teams in, in Hollywood. And I think one of the hardest things about acting is playing the same role and yet rethinking it. And you're one of the few people uh, who has, you know, who's been front and center for a decade and a half playing one character. How do you evolve that? How do you keep making it new? How do you rethink it without losing the essence of what people love?
0: Well, it's a great question and some of it is my deliberate doing and some of it is just really me evolving over time, right? Like when I started the show, I wasn't a mother, you know, and then I had one child, then I had a second child, then I had a third child, you know, I was with my partner at the time before the show, but we got married and, you know, the relationship was new and, you know, then we're 10 years in and now we're 15 years in. So there's just a natural evolution that has come with me that, of course, I bring myself to that role it's just really me dressed up in scrubs but to be honest that is one of the hardest things and of course I've had to reconcile and practice against rigidity of thought, and I've spoken about this publicly in articles where it's a very common practice in Hollywood that you should never stay on a TV show too long, and you should leave before you get typecast in a role, and you should go pursue other things, and it's absolute madness that you should go chase trophies, and you should chase the attention, and you have to keep your name hot, and you, you know you have to stay out there in a creative capacity so people don't lose respect for you creatively. So that's a choice that most actors make. It's really, really goes against everything that Hollywood stands for to stay on a show for so long. And accept the fact that you're not going to get attention. You'll make more money, which will make more sense in the end if you want to have a family and, and money is important to you and you equate money with power, which you know, I do. I think, you know, my ego, obviously, I like not having to be at the whim of other people being in control of my destiny, right? People being able to say, well, we don't want you for this. We don't want you for this. And I'm sure that being cut out of so many movies early in my career helped shape my decision making, right? Because I thought Mm -hmm. I never want to be in this situation again. I really want to have control over my own destiny. So some things are the best things that never happen. And ultimately, I think that's good because I've seen a lot of attention and fame and all of that can destroy a person. And inflating your ego consistently and constantly chasing that ego boost and that hype, in my opinion, to me, is not healthy. Adam Grant, thanks so much. Thank you. A lot of
7: why I feel it necessary to be socially engaged is because it feels like it gives my platform purpose. And so if anything, my work there relieves a lot of pressure. And it may sound kind of oxymoronic, but the one thing that I run into all the time, and I'm sure you're familiar, one, I feel like whoever plans red carpet events like has a master list of when the world's gonna be in chaos. And it's like, and then we're going to put a major red carpet there. (laughs) And nothing feels more trivial to me than having this crazy opportunity of having a team that you love get you ready for three hours and wear this crazy cool dress and sit on this carpet and the world is burning (laughs) and you're trying to figure out kind of what to do because there are such heightened differences between the world you're experiencing at that moment and the world and the actual reality everyone else is living in. And so if anything, that created just a lot of personal chaos to try and move through the idea of being in an industry that has so much abundance and so much exorbitance and extravagance and when that's not reflective of any other part of the world. And so choosing what I was passionate about and choosing voting work and the other work that I was doing was a way of giving myself purpose and helping figure out, well, what's going to ground me in this space to feel like not only will it give me the clarity of vision to know what's for me and what's not for me, but also give me the clarity of mind to say, when I am going into these spaces, when I am grateful to be wearing this luxurious outfit or whatever, what message am I walking in with? What's the goal of when I enter this space and what's the goal of when I leave? And so if anything, that really helped me get so specific in a way that has allowed me to feel more at peace and to not go through all of these kind of emotions of feeling like here we are in this detached, made up world. And so that's one thing that's actually been of service to me. And then in regard to just kind of general pressures, One thing that I did recently is got off of Twitter and I did not realize how much I had a literal Twitter voice in my head dictating what I felt like people were going to respond to. And what it was doing was it was kind of undercutting my knowingness of saying everything that I do is thoughtful. I'm not going to get everything right, but I promise you I thought through it. I thought deeply about it. I was in conversation with my friends and my mentors about it, thinking about the pros, the cons, the repercussions. And so... The Twitter voice was adding this strange pressure of the unpredictability of somebody's critique, and I was giving it so much weight that I was totally ignoring the fact that I am a thoughtful human being (laughs) that wouldn't do anything that felt not right. And I may still have lessons to learn and mistakes that I'll make, but at least those are choices that I made versus trying to work in reaction to this kind of fake voice. And when I got, got off of Twitter, I kid you not, the way in which I felt so much lighter In how I move, I feel so much freer in terms of when I'm approaching new opportunities and decisions because I also know that my accountability network are now people that care deeply about me and want to see me grow. So when somebody is coming to me with, hey, have you thought about that? Hey, you need to give consideration to this. It's coming from such a different space. It's not some random voice that has nothing to do with you, but somebody that's seeing you and say, I want you to be better. I want you to progress and grow. So I'm going to give you this so that you can learn from it. And so that's released, I don't know how much pressure. I did not realize how much being so involved in social media was changing what I did. And then I think finally, the other thing I did was also figure out where can I be useful? You know, one thing I realized was because I've always been politically engaged from a young age, there are a lot of opportunities because of it. But on the flip side, I was also trying to figure out, like, what can I help be an expert in? Because if you hear me everywhere, every single time with a different message, as much as I genuinely care about everything I speak about, it kind of dilutes what my particular purpose and efficiency can be in the space. Because there are going to be other experts that can handle something much better than I can. And so taking off the pressure to feel like I was also a newscaster... Commenting on every single thing that happened in the world also meant that I felt like when I'm participating, there's a greater impact because I'm helping fill a space that only I particularly have the capacity to do, or I'm helping contribute in a way that's unique to me versus being one of 10 billion people feeling like I have to comment on this. When I'm still learning myself about what's happening or I'm still learning how to grapple with or how to be of service. And so those have been the three kind of tenets that has really shifted whatever pressure I had felt prior and allowed me to focus on what feels most authentic to me.
0: I love every single word (laughs) that you just said. (laughs) I don't know how you feel, but from the outside, you are just a fantastic balance of thoughtfulness, having fun and living your life with purpose. So I hope if anybody listening does not follow you on social media, on Instagram, I hope they start following you immediately because you're really striking a nice balance and being so inspirational to so many young people. Thank you. I just tell my daughter, whatever Yara does, just do whatever Yara does. That's like my thing. I'm like, I don't know Mm -hmm. the answer, but Yara knows it. So just do whatever Yara does. And I love your dad's, like your mom always shows, Chocolate Mommy Love is Yara's mom. Mm -hmm. And she's one of the most gorgeous women you'll ever see. And she's also my fitness guru. I, <laughs> yeah. She always does her workouts on her Instagram. So I'm like, if she can do that, I can do it. Yeah. <laughs> and then she always shows off those beautiful plates of fruit that your dad makes. Yes for her. And I just, the love that your family has for each other is such a source of inspiration for me and puts a smile on my face every time I check in. So, so much gratitude and love sending to you and your whole family. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today.
7: Well, thank you so much. And please know, before I got on, I got texts from the whole family to say hello. And so that love is being sent right back. I think we're grateful. I mean, just knowing how you've paved the way before I even was in the ABC family or in this industry, but then to know you personally and to feel the impact personally of even knowing how we can advocate for ourselves in this space and make this space more enjoyable has been so impactful, especially as I enter these new years of being a producer and being more
0: involved. So thank you so much. And thank you for thinking of me for this wonderful conversation. You have the best day. And I think the last thing I just want to say is we're always moving forward, whether we, you know, you said I'm going to make mistakes. I say I'm going to make mistakes. I've made plenty of them. Lord knows. But as long as we keep moving forward and keep good energy and positive energy in our heart, we just got to keep on keeping on. Yeah. So I love you, Yara. Much love to you. Bye-bye. Bye.